The 2022 Review with Sean Defoe on News Talk. Hello and welcome to part one of the 2022 Review, where I'm looking back at the year that was. I hope you all had a fantastic Christmas and are all, you know, patting your belly, sitting back, feeling that little bit heavier, but just sort of content with the food and the drink and all the chocolates coursing through your veins as you're sitting back and listening to this or maybe you're driving to see relatives at the moment off to to celebrate to continue the party going on so if you are drive safe and enjoy the rest of the holidays over the next hour we're going to be taking a look back at some of the big stories that dominated the headlines throughout 2022 the highs and lows the stories which were all over the news agenda and then ones that may have seemed really important at the time but i guarantee you you've almost entirely forgotten about it. And with that in mind, let's cast ourselves back and go into the archive for the story that was dominating the airwaves on the 1st of January 2022. Secondary school teachers have expressed concern at the growing number of COVID cases as students prepare to return to school. Education Minister Norma Foley and public health officials are due to meet early next week before schools return on Thursday. President of the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland, Eamon Dennehy, says schools must be safe for both teachers and pupils. Well, there is concern about that, but uh, we, and, uh, you know, our objective always would be to try and keep the schools open, but they have to be safe uh, in order for that to happen. And there is indeed uh, concern among our membership with regard to uh, the rising numbers. The 1st of January saw 23,381 confirmed new cases of COVID-19, but we all know the figure was probably much larger because for love nor money, you could not get a PCR test. I'm joined now by News Talk's own Eamon Torsney, who was working the news desk back at base throughout those two years of COVID announcements. So Eamon, obviously big stories of the year. I think we all forget how big COVID was at the start of the year. It's quite extraordinary, really, because the Christmas we had last year was under restrictions uh, when you think of it. And we were limited to the number of people we could gather around and spend Christmas with. And then we had case numbers uh, going through the roof. And it it looked as if we we were going to be stuck with COVID for a while. And then we had the limits to eight o'clock in the evening to go out Mm. uh, as well. So there were a lot of limits there. And then uh, in the new year... uh, Surprisingly, well, I think it took a lot of us by surprise just to the extent with which uh, the restrictions were lifted. Because mm. it, it went from like very early on in the new year, you had, I suppose, that the straightaway story was the schools, were the schools going to open? And then also, nobody could get a test. Well, well, that was it exactly. And the thing about the schools was it was seen as the area where uh, the spread was going to increase. And, you know, is it worth opening up again? We had lockdowns and we had reopenings all throughout last year. And I think we're all afraid that it was going to happen the same. So perhaps, you know, keeping the schools closed might have been an option. The Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland joined Jonathan Healy on the Pat Kenny Show ahead of a meeting with the department about whether or not they'd show up to work. No, 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 you, you, no, you, you, no, Eamon, you'll get the tea in sympathy, don't get me wrong, but if they tell you the schools are, are opening on Thursday, will you turn up on sorry, Thursday? It, no, but you, you missed the point there. It's not about tea, tea and sympathy. It's not about tea and sympathy. People, I accept that uh, all parties at those meetings are going to be acting as best they can. I represent one side of that uh, argument, and there are several sides to it, and uh, I'll represent that as best I can. And my my job here is to ensure one of the things I think I need to do is to impress on everybody how important it is that these schools are safe for all members and for everybody okay. in there. 
I'll, I'll try once more before we wrap it up, Eamon. If they tell you the schools are opening on Thursday, will will ASCI members be there? We will. I, I can't preempt. If uh, that's, I'm not going to speculate on 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 that. You know, okay. we're going to have a discussion. We'll see how the meeting goes later on. Eamon Dennehy, President of the Association of Secondary Teachers of Ireland, the ASTI, thank you very much for joining us. Let's uh, go next to Simon Lewis. He's the Principal of Carlow Educate Together. He's the host of If I Was Ever the Minister for Education podcast. Simon, I'm not sure you want to be the minister on a, on a day like today where lots of complicated decisions are being made. How confident are you about opening on Thursday? Hiya, Jonathan. Uh, good to talk to you again. Um, look, I, I think um, it, it seems inevitable that schools are going to open on Thursday. Whether that's the right decision or not, I suppose, is, is up to public health and the people that represent uh, myself, teachers and children around the country. So um, what, my, what I'm not so confident about is how long we'll be able to keep all of our classrooms open um, because of, uh, I, I guess, um, we're already seeing, I mean, I don't know if you've been around the shops today, a lot of them are closed because of, um, you know, of COVID in, in the shops. So I, schools are not going to be any different. If we don't have enough staff to open classrooms, we're certainly not going to be able to keep them open. Yeah. And if you can't keep classrooms open, what, what's the option? Do you, do you shove them into another classroom? Do you pack another room just because there's a teacher in there? Because that doesn't seem particularly safe either. But it isn't, and uh, you know, and, and it's something that was in uh, the mitigation or in the measures that were given to schools at the very start that were not allowed to split classes, um, and for obvious reasons. I mean, what, what I mean, we're trying to uh, stop the spread of a virus, so it would make absolutely no sense to shove um, a, a bunch of children into other classrooms. I mean, there wouldn't be the space number one, but even if we split them around other classes, uh, you know, it, it's a recipe for disaster. So it's it, it's going to be very difficult. And there again, yeah, because there were so many people uh, testing positive, I think the figures were in the tens of thousands at one point in the early part of the year, then it was impossible to get a test. And we'd only adapted, if you like, or adopted, if you like, the the idea that, yeah, COVID tests and antigen tests are the way forward. And even that was a battle in itself. (laughs) Obviously, we are in the the, the throes of the Omicron wave, Shane, uh, but I think it is time that we changed our approach. It is not just the studies that show that Omicron is mild. It is the evidence of our own eyes. It's a different beast, Omicron. I defy anyone else to, to say that it isn't. But uh, let us know what you think. 53106 uh, at a cost of 30 cents. And sticking with the Omicron surge, I'm joined now by the HSE National Lead on the Vaccination Programme and on Testing and Tracing, Damien McCallion. Good morning to you, Damien. First of all, can we talk a little bit about test and trace? We're certainly hearing about people unable to get a PCR test around the country. Do you have any sucker for them? Yes, it was Kira, we're at, as you said, like the prevalence of the disease is very high. We've seen positivity over recent days in, in the high 50s in relation to the proportion of people who are positive out of those tested. PCR access is, is certainly a very big challenge at the moment. It's, it's similar in a lot of testing systems throughout Europe. We're seeing stories because, I suppose, of the widespread prevalence of the disease. What we've done, I guess, is we've built up our capacity from 100,000 to 300,000. Um, we still prioritise clinical referrals, those from GPs, from our close contacts and acute services. Uh, so there's no question at the moment it is demanding for people to, to try and get that appointment. And we know there's there's pressure there. What I would say is the important advice, I guess, is to look at hse.ie in relation to the public health advice. So whether you have a positive antigen test, you're symptomatic, and while you're waiting to get a PCR appointment, um, we would say, look, just look at the website, look at the advice and follow that advice, because that's the crucial intervention at the moment when the disease is as prevalent as it is. Okay, and 
not to, to, to nitpick, but because the advice has changed quite a bit over the last number of weeks, I'm not sure that people in general know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. What about the people who can't get a, a, a PCR easily and have a positive antigen? Is that now considered enough? Yeah, so so we brought in changes from yesterday, Kira, where people ages 4 to 39, for example, will now receive antigen tests on the basis that they were a lower priority. Um, and that process commenced yesterday. And that will also hopefully, as we go through the week, release some PCR capacity into the system. Um, if you have a positive antigen test, either for, as part of one of the HSEs programs or just a test that you've undertaken yourself, you know, again, the advice is to treat that as a positive result. And again, to look at hse.e, we know the advice has changed. It changed again on Monday. Yeah. And I suppose that's, that's in trying to respond to the, the nature of the pandemic. So that's why what we would always say is, look, go to hse.e, look at the particular circumstances for yourself, either as a case or as a close contact. And the advice is then set out. The up-to-date advice is always maintained on our website. That was the HSE's Damien McCallion on with Kira Kelly on News Talk Breakfast in January. And it's bringing me back to last Christmas when... I spent a week in isolation with what I thought was COVID, but turned out not to be COVID. But again, for love nor money, I could not get a test to prove it. People were selling Christmas presents for PCR tests at that stage almost. How far we think we have come. By January 7th this year, more than 300 million COVID cases have been reported worldwide. While by the end of January, more than 10 billion vaccines had been administered. Eamon Torsney, how did you find it in the newsroom this time last year? Because at that stage, we'd really been through so much and gone through the ringer a few times. And there was a lot of fatigue for the story, a lot of people who maybe didn't really want to hear about it. But as a journalist, you couldn't ignore it. You couldn't ignore it. And what's key about the the story is that it impacted every single one of us. So it wasn't as if we were just relating another story. We literally were relating a story that we were all living through as well in our own different ways. We were all impacted in different ways. And then it was the kind of dare to believe moment that actually they might actually lift restrictions uh, sooner than we expected and the freedoms that we were all hoping for and we had all expected earlier than that were actually down the track. So it was very strange and it was it was almost hard to believe that actually we were just going to have this huge gear shift in terms of the policy over COVID uh, from you know, rolling lockdowns, all if you like, uh, in response to case numbers to a situation where we were just going to go for it. And uh, that, I found that hard to believe that we were actually going to make that uh, big decision so quickly after Christmas. This, this is News Talk. It's nine o'clock, good morning. The Cabinet will sign off on the lifting of most COVID restrictions when it meets later. New NEFID advice allows for nightclubs to reopen and pubs and restaurants to return to normal hours. Crowd limits at events are also to be scrapped. COVID certs will only be needed for travel. Infectious diseases expert Professor Sam McConkie told News Talk it's the beginning of the end. We're in a very different place because of the extensive vaccination and because it's even though it's more transmissible, it appears to be uh, less able to cause damage. So our hospitals aren't overwhelmed, our ICU is not overwhelmed. So there isn't any, uh, you know, need to to keep this sort of removal of our of our sort of basic civil liberties that we've we've lost for two years. That that can't be justified anymore and, and shouldn't be. So they're they're hopefully all going to disappear very quickly. Um, so Sean, first of all, um, as with everything uh, attached to Neffet and the Minister for Health and now the Cabinet, we kind of know um, what's there anyway. 
Yeah, we do. Although uh, far fewer people complaining, it has to be said, Pat, when it's good news that is getting leaked rather than the, the dream, uh, grim and, and dreary news that we've been used to, I suppose, over the last 18 months. So we, we have a good idea of what was in that letter. And it is goes, goes further, I think, than quite a few ministers expected, a lot of the public expected too. Basically, all almost all restrictions uh, can ease as soon as the government sees fit. So that includes the, the curfew on hospitality, the 8pm curfew that can be lifted, the need for COVID passes uh, to go in to those kind of settings, capacities at, at live events, both indoor and outdoors, some of the matches that are coming up, the National League, the, the Six Nations, for example, as well. Uh, only a few restrictions that are actually sticking on, and, and those in name, I suppose, are, are the mask wearing. That's probably going to be with us for a while longer in, in shops and public places, public transport. Uh, you're also going to see the need for the COVID pass for international travel kept. So while you won't need it to go to a bar or a restaurant, you will need it probably uh, to fly to most uh, countries. Also, there's going to be regulations, particularly mask wearing in schools and some of the other protective stuff in schools, uh, they're going to, to stay on as well as the uh, test trace and isolate system. Now, Owen DeBarra, consultant in infectious diseases at Beaumont Hospital and senior lecturer at the Royal College of Surgeons, uh, is listening to that conversation. Do you go along with uh, the Neffet advice? I mean, is all the evidence there that, yes, Omicron is highly infectious, but it's not doing very much harm? Yes, I think largely this is where we wanted to get to. We have enough data to suggest it hasn't caused a huge impact with the severely ill. It's obviously impacted service provision and, and staffing, and I think that's the next piece still that's going to linger. Um, there clearly are still people who are suffering with this. There's people in ITU today, there's individual stories playing out, and we shouldn't forget that there are many vulnerable in society that are feeling huge anxiety with you know the pace of this. But I, I think largely it's the right direction at the moment with cautious caveats. And then I think it took an awful long time for us to unwind from those restrictions so that perhaps even when we were allowed to do things, we still kept our distance. I think I was elbowing people up until mm-hmm. about June and July uh, this year as well, until it became comfortable then to shake hands and all that kind of stuff. So I think our psyche took a lot more, a lot longer to change uh, over the year than than on the actual moment they lifted the restrictions. For you, I, I was always interested, and I've never actually asked you what it was like in here uh, and in the newsroom where we're recording now during all the different announcements, because obviously for me it was very different. I was down in Leinster House bugging ministers all the time, all day, trying to get out what's the latest leaks. But what, like, the amount of Friday evenings, Monday oh, yeah. evenings oh, that oh, we spent, I was locked down in government buildings and you were in here. Like, did you have kind of the same reaction as the public of, Jesus, here we go again, or did it just become part of the job? I suppose it became a bit wary because sometimes the announcements didn't live up to expectation or you knew that the minute there was an announcement there was going to be another clarification within an hour or two if you think it back over the, the nightclubs reopening last year and then suddenly oh, we had to have tickets and all this kind of stuff. And so after a time, sometimes you thought, well, I hope there's something significant in this announcement and it became a little bit you became a bit wary of them. And then it was only then, I suppose the January one opened the promise that actually this could be the last significant announcement and then it became historic, if you like, uh, on that perspective. And from, I mean, coming in here over the two years, uh, I had the, I was lucky enough that I could come in uh, over those two years. It was extraordinary to see the, the city uh, change going from empty streets to gradual uh, return to life in the city and then gradually 
return to life in the office. And I don't think I saw you for a long time. I think we only saw each other over <laughs> Teams, etc., or over the phone. We spoke to each other. So um, it was. A, so it was an extraordinary period. And then I think it was the extraordinary manner in which the restrictions were lifted as well. Mm. Um, I think added to what was a dramatic start to the new year. Yeah, and then with all the traffic around Christmas, you suddenly wished everyone was gone again well, from town. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And of course, you didn't have to worry about getting a taxi home at all, did you? You got to... Uh, this time last year because was you know nobody was going out um, yeah. so we have all these so we're back to worrying about normal everyday uh, things again really and thank be to God say yes, all of us indeed uh, yes Eamon Torsey from the News Talk Newsroom thanks for joining us with that bit of a wrap up of Covid it's, it's totally mad to think that that was only this year but it was what was dominating the news in January 2022 stick with me here on News Talk we're reviewing the news year that was and I'll be back after the break with some more of the biggest stories from the last 12 months The 2022 Review with Sean Defoe. This is News Talk. The 2022 Review with Sean Defoe on News Talk. Welcome back to the 2022 Review with myself, Sean Defoe. We are looking back on some of the biggest stories that hit the headlines over the course of the year. And before the break, we were reliving the COVID restrictions and their lifting at the end of January. And while that easing was something that brought relief and joy to a lot of people, in the middle of that month, a cloud descended over the country after the murder of a young woman in Tullamore. First, let's take this morning's news at six o'clock. A forensic examination will get underway this morning following the death of a woman in County Offaly yesterday. The woman in her 20s died following an assault in Tullamore. Alan Cantwell reports. An area between the canal entrance at Main Street and Boland's Lock remained sealed off overnight pending the arrival of forensic specialists from the Garda Technical Bureau. A man arrested following the attack remains in custody at Tullamore Garda Station and can be questioned for up to 24 hours. It's believed the woman who is from the locality was exercising along the canal when she was attacked. At the scene, Garda discovered a young woman with serious injuries. Medical attention was provided, but despite the best efforts of the medical team, who attended, this young lady passed away. The injuries we believe at this time are consistent with an assault. The incident occurred, as I said, on the Grand Canal Way at Cap and Corp, more specifically between Boland's Lock and Dig- Digby's Bridge here behind me. This area here where the crime occurred is popular among Tullamore residents and is widely used for recreational purposes. The victim of this crime is Ashley Murphy, a 23-year-old local lady from the Blue Ball area of Tullamore. Ashling was a school teacher in Dora National School. Our thoughts and prayers are with Ashling's family at this time, and indeed the wider community, her teaching colleagues, and the children she taught who are without their teacher today. Henry McKean, our own reporter, has visited Tullamore and the Grand Canal outside the town today and got this reaction from locals and friends of Ashling. It makes me feel sick. It's too, it's too upsetting. It's terrible. So it makes you feel sick to oh, Physically core. sick, yeah. Physically, I can't believe that someone would do that to someone, a young woman. Perfectly safe, beautiful winter's evening, left her job, went for a walk. I just, I just can't believe it. Do we live in a community where women can't walk around safely because well, you of see, I wouldn't men. have thought that in Tullamore because that's only my this, own. This was daylight. I went for a walk myself at a quarter past three yesterday. It was such a beautiful, on my own down a place where I didn't meet anybody else but that I, you know, that canal line is just, everybody uses it it's just incredible that somebody could do something to a young woman like that or to anybody 
Like I have a son that age, and, and he, like he knew her. And, you know, it comes to you, you say, we heard it on the news, the next thing I said her name, and he said, what? That can't be right. And I said, no, that's who she is. And how is your son? They're, they're devastated. All the youngsters, they're not feeling done stores there. Like everybody knew her. You know, it's not a big town, so people know, people know people, you know, people, and all those youngsters would be in school together. So she would have graduated a year behind my son. She went to the, to the school and that, so she, he, they would all know each other. Uh, my name is uh, Real Arkins. I'm a mental health awareness campaigner and I just always go along this canal line, line for a walk every morning for mental health. And to say the town is numb is an understatement. I've just come out of the town. People actually cannot believe it. Yeah, some of the people in, in Tullamore speaking to our own reporter, Henry McKean. Uh, James Hogan is the principal of the National School in Durrow in County Leash, where Ashling was a teacher. Uh, James, we are sorry for your loss, first of all, and we really appreciate you taking the time today, a difficult day, to talk to us. Can you tell us a little bit about the Ashling you knew? Oh, look, Kieran, I suppose, to start off, I suppose, um, nobody can prepare for this unexpected tragic news, and we are deeply saddened in Dora National School, not only the staff, the parents, the pupils, but the wider community, uh, to have lost a dear colleague and a great friend, Miss Ashley Murphy. Ashleen, uh, to describe Ashleen, Ashleen was uh, a shining light in our school, and she she's not with us long. She started in our school last March 21, and she's currently teaching first-class pupils, but her her positive attitude, her personality, glowing personality, her friendliness, she gave 110% to everything she put her hand to. She was an exceptional teacher, uh, extraordinary sports person, talented, traditional Irish musician, and I know her both on a principal level, but on a personal level too, from an Irish traditional music background. We played music together and, and attended many flowers and competitions, but um, Ashley was just a breath of fresh air. The kids idolised her, and they're so upset. And, and you know, we, we've lost, uh, in our family, in Doro, in the community, we've lost uh, a family member. And, you know, the, she's so much going for her. A beautiful young lady, recently graduated, um, has so many various talents that she didn't get to share with our school yet due to COVID and so on and so forth. But... Um, we were devastated in our school and we, we were going to remember, I suppose, Ashley, of the way we remember her and the good memories and the kids. They've been amazing. I mean, like, it's not it's not easy for a child or a parent to tell their child that a teacher in their school or, or their class teacher has died from a, a horrific incident. The start of the year seemed to bring more and more bad news. Tensions between Russia and the West ramped up in the early months of the year as Vladimir Putin continued to amass troops and equipment on the borders of Ukraine. But first, let's take this morning's news at six o'clock. The US president says Russian troop deployments in eastern Ukraine are the beginning of an invasion. Joe Biden's comments followed the Kremlin's decision to recognize the independence of two regions. Russia's president insists they'll be peacekeepers, but his upper house of parliament has backed his request, allowing personnel to use force. In response, America, Canada, the UK and EU have all announced sanctions on financial institutions and people close to Vladimir Putin. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says Russia's actions are unacceptable. This decision violates the territorial integrity and the sovereignty of Ukraine. Russia is not respecting its international obligations and it is violating core principle of international law. 
Those tensions continue to rise despite the biggest countries in the world, including the US, China and Russia, declaring in January that a war fought between nuclear superpowers couldn't be won. And then, in February, came the invasion. Breakfast Briefing presenter Shane Beatty was getting ready to go on air as the tanks began to roll into Ukraine. Well, I suppose the first thing I remember was actually seeing the news the minute I woke up that morning. I will rem- I'll never forget the date. It was a Thursday, the 24th of February. Uh, and like a lot of people, certainly a lot of people in this game, if you're a journalist, the first thing you do because you're addicted to social media is you start to check the phone literally the minute the alarm goes off in bed. So the alarm went off at half three. Uh, and I think the first report of Russia invading Ukraine came in at 4 a.m. Kiev time, which would have been 2 a.m. Irish time. So usually when you check Twitter at sort of half three in the morning, it's either stuff from America that's coming through or old stuff from midnight in Ireland. But I remember the entire feed on Twitter was flooded with tweets about the invasion and strikes. There were reports of people in Ukraine trying to find cover, other people just being really, really scared. And I do remember tweeting, we're waking up to a whole new world this morning because that's really what it felt like, just that impending doom literally from the minute I woke up that morning. And it was so strange, Shane, because like there hasn't been a war in Europe in so long and even Iraq was kind of pre-social media. So it was this weird situation where you were seeing a war unfold through tweets. Yeah, and, and that's true. And kind of what journalists had to be careful of that morning was making it very, very clear that this is actually happening and this is big news and this is serious because in the lead up to the 24th of February I remember all sorts of talk and fears that Russia could invade and then they hadn't. So we had to make it clear to people that actually this was happening this was a real live event and to treat it seriously and very, very quickly we had to make sure that the sources that were coming from Ukraine were credible sources that you could believe everything because the news was literally changing by the minute and it was that sort of thing of fake news and trying to work out who you could trust with that information. As someone who's putting together a show on the morning, did did you just have to throw out the running order entirely? I mean, the papers, I presume, were out of date and what was it like in the office? That's right, yeah, Sean. So obviously my show's at 6am, so it was the first news programme really in the country to be able to react to the news. I can't even remember who we'd originally booked to come on the show that morning, but we cancelled them really early, like 5am that morning. The running order went out the window. I remember we got on to Suzanne Lynch, who's a great journalist. She was based in Washington with the Irish Times, but she's now based in Brussels with Politico. So we got on to Suzanne to get her on the show. Obviously, a bit of a time difference with Brussels. She said yes. And when we went on air pretty much the whole six o'clock news bulletin which is a long bulletin was about the Russian invasion But first let's take this morning's news at six o'clock Explosions have been reported near Kiev just minutes after Russia's president authorised a military operation in eastern Ukraine Lights have gone off in some parts of Kiev Reports also suggest blasts have been heard in cities including Odessa and Kharkiv Russian President Vladimir Putin made the announcement in a TV address I decided to conduct a special military operation. Its goal is the protection of the people who, for eight years, suffered from abuse and genocide from the Kiev regime. Explosions have been heard in the capital city of Ukraine. Sky's Deborah Haynes is there. It seems that the, the direction of the, of the explosions was um, it's some reporting maybe out towards the airport behind me is like out towards the east, which actually effectively Russia is in that direction. 
Vladimir Putin's announcement was made at the same time as a UN Security Council meeting was taking place urging peace. Speaking afterwards, Secretary General Antonio Guterres appealed directly to the Russian leader. In the name of humanity, bring your troops back to Russia. In the name of humanity, do not allow to start in Europe what could be the worst war since the beginning of the century. And you mentioned the papers there. We have a newspaper review on Breakfast Briefing every morning. But all the papers front pages were totally out of date. So we had to sort of say, you know, the situation is changing hour by hour, minute by minute. So covered all the other stories in the papers instead. But I remember the first thing we asked Suzanne when she came on at 6am was... What is the news that we can actually tell the Irish people this morning? It's really changed overnight. If people are waking up right now, what can we tell them? And she said the news is we're waking up to war in Europe. A really stark statement. Yeah, it's that, that there is now a full-scale invasion uh, by Russia into Ukraine. Um, and we're now looking at, at war in the European con- continent. Uh, probably the biggest conflict uh, here since, since World War II. So it's going to be a very shocked Brussels waking up this morning. In saying that, the very fact that uh, there had been an emergency summit called this evening um, indicates and reiterates the fact that this was not unexpected. We've been hearing this for a while from Western intelligence sources uh, from the European side, from from the US. Um, And the hope would be that uh, when leaders come today, they're ready for uh, to sign off on a new pact of sanctions. But frankly, um, you know, I was at Munich Security Conference last Saturday where the Ukrainian president implored allies to impose the sanctions now, said, what are you waiting for? It would be too late if the invasion happens. So one would wonder, you know, how much uh, a sanctions can do at this point. Uh, but it does look like they will be ready to sign off on some very, very heavy hitting sanctions. The war continued to escalate as the the diplomatic rhetoric around it and the Irish government, along with most of Europe, was highly, highly critical of Russia and heavily involved in sanctions. And we became used to this new phrase from the government about Ireland's neutrality. Here's Simon Coveney on with Pat Kenny. You, you, you are Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence and uh, the nature of our defence and our neutrality and so on. You said that neutrality you know, is not something for the, for the now, but will be, of course, something that will certainly be discussed. But I'm wondering in terms well, of the, the Russian just response... To, just to clarify, yeah? that, just, 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 I mean, first of all, Ireland is not neutral on this war. So like, let nobody be under any illusions there. We are not neutral. We have taken sides and we're right to take sides. Uh, when a when a global military superpower invades a sovereign independent country, uh, targets its civilians to try to break the spirit of that country, to force its will on them, uh, that is not something that you can be neutral on. Uh, And uh, if Ireland is to be a credible member of the international community uh, that makes international decisions and foreign policy decisions on the basis of international law, well, then you cannot be neutral on something like that. And we're not neutral. And that's why we are contributing to to help uh, the Ukrainian military uh, to defend themselves and defend their people and their sovereignty. And that's why we are going to, and, and the country uh, is taking such a, a proactive role in terms of responding to the humanitarian crisis as well. As the rhetoric ramped up, Russian TV presenters began making nuclear threats. One particular host simulating what a nuclear bomb deployed off the Donegal coast would do to Ireland and the UK. 
Another option is to plunge Britain into the depths of the sea using Russia's unmanned underwater vehicle Poseidon. It approaches its target at a depth of one kilometre at a speed of 200 kilometres per hour. There's no way of stopping this underwater drone. The warhead on it has a yield of up to 100 megatons. The explosion of this thermonuclear torpedo by Britain's coastline would cause a gigantic tsunami wave up to 500 metres high. Such a barrage alone also carries extreme doses of radiation. Having passed over the British Isles, it would turn what might be left of them into a radioactive desert. In April, the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed a joint sitting of the Dáil and Shannon to describe what the war was doing to his country. The fact is that as a result of Russian shelling, 927 educational institutions were, were damaged. 258 hospitals. They even uh, shot at 78 ambulances. They were targeting even churches and shelters that they knew for sure that there is nobody but women and children. And this is a fact. The country which is doing this is not, doesn't deserve to be in the circle of the civil countries. It should be held responsible for everything they have done in the Ukrainian soil. They have come to Ukraine as a colonizing army. Their state propag propagandists and their politicians are not even concealing what they want. In the 21st century, they're looking at their country as a colonial empire who allegedly has the right to subdue neighboring people and destroy the foundations of their independent life, destroy their identity, everything that makes us Ukrainians. Russian soldiers deliberately were looking for and killing teachers in the occupied districts. They are uh, abducting local government leaders and they're killing community leaders. Together with the Russian army, there were special groups coming in who were um, trying to destroy any political opposition. Now, when we're hearing new rhetoric about the sanctions against Russian opposition, I can't tolerate any, indeci any indecisiveness after everything that we have gone through in Ukraine, after everything that Russian troops have done. And unfortunately, Ukrainians are still living with the consequences of what's now looking like a very long and drawn-out war. Ireland agreed to take in tens of thousands of refugees and is now facing a real shortage of accommodation to house them, something that's been really difficult for those who've come into communities over the last few months, who've made a home there, who've settled in, whose children maybe are in the local schools and who maybe are working themselves. And that's something that's then feeding into the wider housing crisis, which, of course, has dominated headlines throughout 2022 as well. You are listening to the 2022 review on News Talk. After the break, more top stories from throughout the year. The 2022 review with Sean Defoe. This is News Talk. The 2022 review with Sean Defoe. On News Talk.
Now, welcome back to this look back on the big news stories of 2022. And having taken a look at some of the heavier news dominating the headlines over the past year, it will be easy to forget that the world of entertainment has also seen something of a bumper year with the COVID restrictions eased, people going back to the cinema and theatres and actually able to see and do things properly again. And joining me to run through some of the big Stories is entertainment reporter Tara Walsh. Uh, Tara, we might start with something that had more than half the world talking, and you can debate whether or not it should fall into the category of entertainment, but it did. And something I actually forgot was this year, and that was the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial. I know, this was such a massive deal. I remember at the time, like going home every day after work and like watching the trial online and everyone was watching it and everyone had opinions. It was such a massive moment in entertainment for the year. As a reminder, Depp sued his ex-wife Heard for a 2018 article when she described herself as a public figure representing domestic abuse. She countersued also for defamation. What we have is a mountain of unproven allegations that are wild, over the top and implausible. What Ms. Heard testified to in this courtroom is the story of far too many women. But the overwhelming evidence and weight of that evidence shows that it's not her story. It was an act of profound cruelty, not just to Mr. Depp, but to true survivors of domestic abuse. You have now come to know the real Amber Heard. Scary. No woman ever, no woman ever before Amber Heard ever claimed that Mr. Depp raised a hand to her in his 58 years. This is Me Too without any Me Too. Trying to convince you that Mr. Depp has carried his burden of proof in proving that he was never abusive to Amber on even one occasion. Think about the message that Mr. Depp and his attorneys are sending to Amber and by extension to every victim of domestic abuse everywhere. If you didn't take pictures, it didn't happen. If you did take pictures, they're fake. If you didn't tell your friends, you're lying. And if you did tell your friends, they're part of the hoax. And if you finally decide that enough is enough, you've had enough of the fear, enough of the pain, and you have to leave to save yourself, you're a gold digger. In the end, the jury awarded Depp $10 million in compensatory damages and $5 million in punitive damages. And the jury awarded Heard $2 million in compensation damages uh, and no money for punitive damages uh, for a statement that Depp's attorney made about her. Moving on, Tara, and the Oscars this year, we quite literally saw blood on the dance floor. I know this. Honestly, I remember that morning so well because I rolled out of bed and it was one of those days where I was like, I don't know if I want to go in today. And then I remember seeing the headline, Will Smith slaps Chris Rock at the Oscars. And I was like, up like so fast into work, reported on it. But yeah, it was the most dramatic moment. And now he's kind of, Will Smith is making his return to Hollywood now with his new film, Emancipation. And He's apologizing and speaking out about it and just trying to get his name back into Hollywood and try and redeem himself a little bit. But I don't know if if people are ready for that or it's a weird one. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? (laughs) (laughs) It's that was a that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh oh, Richard. <laughs> oh wow, wow. 
Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Get my name out your mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane joke. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. I'm going to, okay? Another big story you wanted to talk about from the entertainment world is one that I actually never really had the time to catch up on. I sort of knew there was something going on there, but never really found out what it was. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, and that's the drama around the film Don't Worry Darling. Sean, you have missed out on so much if you don't know the drama behind this, and I can't fully keep up with it. First of all, we had um, Olivia Wilde, who directed Don't Worry Darling, announcing that Harry Styles was replacing Shia LaBeouf. Nobody knew why, as the lead in the film. It was this big drama. Um, Basically, he replaced... He replaced Shia LaBeouf. Reports came out saying that, you know, um, Florence Pugh didn't get on with Shia and that's kind of what happened there behind the scenes. And then Olivia Wilde came out to say that she fired Shia, that she she released a statement. You know, she gave an interview with Variety and it was this whole big thing. And then Shia LaBeouf ended up uh, releasing emails that he sent to Olivia Wilde saying, you know very well that I decided to leave this film of my own accord. Uh, he sent these emails onto a publication and then a video emerged of Olivia Wilde talking to Shia and trying to get him onto the movie saying, look, we can make this work. You know, if um, he, she said, I respect your opinion and I respect Miss Flo's opinion, which I assume is Florence Pugh. So there's this massive thing. And then all of a sudden people were saying, OK, well, there's this drama around is Florence Pugh and Olivia Wilde feuding and all of a sudden Florence Pugh stopped promoting the film as much on her social media. She didn't do much press, which almost like enhanced that speculation. Um, you also had the Harry Styles drama with Chris Pratt. No, sorry, Chris Pine. Do you remember that? Did he Did he spit on him? He didn't. I don't think he did. Harry Styles came out to, did he say he didn't? No, he made a joke about it at one of his gigs saying, I'm just come back after spitting on Chris Pine at the, the Venice Film Festival. But he was clearly joking. And then a lot of people online I saw were like, oh my God, he admitted it. And I was like, no, he didn't. <laughs> he was only messing. But Olivia Wilde gave an interview on uh, Stephen Colbert, I think it was. And she was like, that did not happen. It's a perfect prime example of how people are making up these stories. So... Oh my God, I'm actually out of breath just talking about it. But yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, Chris Pine, Harry Styles, they were at the Venice Film Festival. Harry Styles went to sit down next to Chris and whatever way it was angled, whatever way it all happened, it looked like he spat on him and then sat down because Chris reacted in such a way. But I don't think that's what happened. I'm going to just pretend he did because it's uh, far more entertaining. Let's end this piece on a happy note and that is Benifer. Benifer, they're back. So this was such an exciting moment in 2021. I think we thought that the coronavirus maybe would be 100% over by last year, but it wasn't. It was still ongoing. And then we saw that J-Lo and Ben Affleck were getting back together and we were like, the world is good again. Um, I think they got engaged in the early noughties. I can't say the date exactly. I think it might have been around 2004. They were together for a year, engaged for a year, and then called it quits and moved on with their lives. Um, she's been engaged a couple of times. He was with Jennifer Garner. He has kids and... And somehow they found their way back to each other. They got married this year. And actually, I thought this was, I don't know how I feel about this. You tell me what you think. Um, in a recent interview, she said that he got the words, um, not going anywhere inscribed on the ring he used to propose to her. Because it was, it's like, oh, we're finally back together again. Yeah, if you need to put that on a ring, 
I am. I don't know. Anyway, Tara Walsh, entertainment reporter, thank you for joining us to run through the biggest Ents stories of 2022. Well, I mentioned the full return to cinemas this year and there were $2 billion grossing movies in 2022, both franchise installments. The top grossing movie of this year, Tom Cruise in Top Gun Maverick. Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. While in what's expected to be the final Jurassic Park installment, well, at least for now, Jurassic World Dominion was second. Creation is an act of sheer will. Life will find a way. But the top 10 this year shows that superhero movies are still where the money is at. The third highest grossing film of 2022, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Robert Pattinson's debut as Batman was number five. This is about a king and brothers to match. I can take care of myself. If this continues, it won't be long before you've nothing left. I don't care what happens to me. Black Panther Wakanda Forever was in at number six and probably going to climb by the time that you're actually listening to this. And then Thor's Love and Thunder came in at number seven. His hands were once used for battle. Now they're but humble tools for peace. I need to figure out exactly who I am. Two Irish films getting a lot of buzz in particular this year. The Banshees of Inishirin with Brendan Gleeson, Colin Farrell and Barry Keown. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. When you didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more. You liked me yesterday. Why does he not want to be friends with you no more? Why is he 12? What the hell's going on with you, me feckin' brother? He's dull, Siobhan. But he's always been done. The other night, two hours you spent talking to me about the things you found in your little donkey shite that day. Well, it wasn't me little donkey shite, it was me pony shite, which shows how much you were listening. And The Quiet Girl on Colleen Kuhn has already been selected as Ireland's Oscars entry in the Best International Feature Film category. How long should they keep her? Till after the baby? She can't they keep her as long as they like. And when it comes to music, you can decide yourself what you think the top songs of 2022 were because frankly music is far too subjective for me to get into a row. I'm not even going to go there. But in our house, three of the ones that were in the mix, Harry Styles' As I Am, About Damn Time from Lizzo and Megan Trainor's Made You Look. So there you have an insight into the sort of poppy soundtrack that we have on while cooking dinner uh, in the Defoe household. Thank you for tuning in to the first half of this review of 2022. If you're listening on the radio, I'll be back tomorrow morning at 11am with the second half, which includes such gems as the UK going into absolute and total political meltdown like beyond anything we've ever seen before, just a total and utter collapse of the system. And then, of course, the year in sport, which also includes an eventual English loss. Just want to put that one in there. If you're listening on podcast, part two is probably also available now, wherever it is you're listening. So click through and have a listen. Either way, thank you for tuning in. Hope you've had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 
The 2022 Review with Sean Defoe. This is News Talk.